Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. Today we feature part one of my interview with Brian Heaney. Brian is a sound engineer with eclectic experience in all things sonic, including studio engineering, live sound, archiving, radio production, and audio education. As a musician, Brian has played with a long list of groups including Guitar Up, Zed Zeppelin, The New Sprites, The Thatses, and his own 37 ENT projects, just to name a few. We talked in December 2017 at his own Studio 37 here in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I have tapes of myself as a, as a very young individual uh, with a friend of mine, and we used to play around with the boom box recording off the radio and it had a switch to get to the mic input and so we'd drop in lines over the radio uh onto tape and and run skits and that sort of thing um wait so you'd overdub yourself over the radio to a boom box yeah it would you would <laughs> we'd record off the radio and uh and so i remember um i remember that show uh, jake and the fat man and uh there was um and so we'd be we'd have that going for a little while and then we'd bust in with our own line when we had an idea over what was going on. So it would switch totally to our input and not not an overdub but uh but a, a drop in. Ah. And then we go back to the radio and then you know those were those were very short um short things that would happen and uh just jumping in on songs and and this sort of thing. And uh and so that was always fun, but what I remember this one uh, happening. Um, I, I can't remember how old I was, but uh, but I had a a new recorder, um, just a component uh, system, all in one thing, and uh, and it had high speed dubbing, and I was recording off the radio at high speed, and I played back the tape, not knowing what was going to happen, and and it was uh, Pink Floyd, us and them. <laughs> at you know like half speed uh-huh. and uh, i was just uh i was really enamored by that um in fact uh, that's a very clear recollection for me and that was also um it had a turntable in it and that was uh the first time with my mr bungle record that was uh the first record that i ever bought myself disco volante and uh that album has a secret track in it that is in the middle of the record alongside another track Wait, as a secret track in the middle of the record. Yes, in the middle of the record, <laughs> you have to pick up the needle and move it over one groove, and you get the secret track. Really? And, and if d- you don't pick it up, you don't hear it? You don't hear it. Oh. It just skips right past it. And I had no idea, and it was actually that um, I w- stepped across the room too hard, and I skipped the needle <laughs> by accident, and I didn't know the thing was there, and I was, got really frightened <laughs> when the secret track came on because... Uh, well, if you know it, um, it has the uh, quiet. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't let them know. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> okay, so right from the beginning, you're listening to Pink Floyd at half speed. You're you're finding secret tracks in the middle of Mr. Bungle albums. You're dropping in on radio recordings. Yep. How how how, <laughs> how did that end up growing into uh you know I I assume that you had a hand in engineering for your bands in college and that sort of thing. Were you taking on that kind of role or were you still going to other studios or like Well, I um I had uh in once we once I started getting into media classes in high school, um, we uh, 
I started looking into other uh, methods of recording because we were tasked with, you know, whatever the assignment was, make a commercial or make a radio production and, and overdub. And, you know, they suggested using the, uh, the two boom boxes and, and the air, you know, uh, mixing. Um, and wait, but, wait, when you say that, you mean using what, what's air mixing on two? I'm two sorry. Boom boxes? I, I'm referring to that as, um, you have, uh, you, you record on the boom box and then you play that in the, in the other boom box in the air and do your new track oh. to the next boom box. So, so it takes two tapes. So and, you're playing out the speakers of one boom box, playing along to it and recording that on a n- second boom box. Yeah. People, Sweet. yeah. People have told me about that and I never, I never did it because I always thought, well, I've recorded on the boombox enough to know that this isn't gonna get me the results that I want. Um, you know, I wanted something cleaner by the time I, you know, was doing these types of things in in high school. But I had met uh, some folks who had a four track, and uh, so they loaned me the four track, and that was the first time I ever got to use a four track. Was maybe eleventh or twelfth grade to do um, to do uh, this drama recording that we were supposed to do in my media class, and mm-hmm. um, so they said we could use whatever tools we wanted. So I borrowed Mike Merva's four track uh-huh. and uh, cassette four track. Yeah, it was a yeah. it was uh, one of the Fostex ones with the flat circular dials, uh-huh. um, yep. and uh, and um, and so we did that one. Um, that was a, a Spider Man production radio show uh, with an ad for um, a trucker weight loss supplement, and. Um, and uh, that I don't have that tape, unfortunately. Um, I, I haven't spoken with a guy who maybe still has that tape, but maybe one day you'll find that on WDON. So to answer <laughs> your question about uh, how did these initial experiences influence my recording, at least that's that's a question I heard out of this. And I think it's it's funny that the the last WDON that I did is probably the most indicative of all of those types of influences. Um, with uh, fake radio commercials and static and different times being represented in all sorts of different uh, recording styles um, making up that uh, production. So, but, um, but as far as recording, you know, my own bands and that sort of thing, it was, I, I, we did that once with the four track, but I wasn't in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and I, I remember uh, um, once I got my own four track, then I started, you know, to do other things with it. But I've always been the type of person where um, I don't tend to want to do anything for other people until I know that I can get something out of it. Like I have to practice mm-hmm. a lot before I will wind up telling you, okay, I can record your band. Uh-huh. You know, I would. I had done a whole lot of recordings, and um, and many of them, as as every engineer goes through, they were very bad with very <laughs> high noise floors. You know, uh-huh. and uh, my buddy Dan Betzner, I remember he said, "You, you want to get the, you want to see these lights go all the way up, you uh-huh. know." And he was talking about the meters, right? And so I'm just seeing anything on the meters and going, oh, "I'm getting a recording." You know, get more signal to tape is ultimately what he was telling me. So um, if you ever have the opportunity to hear any of the early Thats's recordings, um, that's what you got. That's some of my first, you know, recordings uh-huh. on the four track that you I was responsible for, and we. It, on some of them we went all the uh-huh. way up but mostly the noise floor is all the way up and um <laughs> so that's just part of uh-huh. the charm of that is is my you know learning curve but um but no we went to the romans especially we went to um we worked with steve versaw at western sound mm-hmm. studios for our first uh, seven inch and the uh, longbow comp recording track um farewell miss sand 
And uh, so there's about eight, eight or ten tracks that we did there, and not all of them were released. And then, um, and then uh, we went to uh, WGNS Studios in DC when we were on tour in '97, uh, and recorded a full length with um, uh, Jeff Turner there, and uh, who's a DC. A heavyweight in the indie scene. I don't know if he would think that of himself, but he certainly is for uh, for me and for us as a band at the time. Uh, he was the dude. Yeah. Um, well, Steve Versaw, who you mentioned, went on to some huge things in Chicago as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are some heavy hitters early on. That's right. That's yep. Yep. Um, so that's uh, for all those Roman Invasion Suite fans who might be listening. That uh, album never was released, um, and the recordings that you can find. Um, through mp3b and all sorts of other robot web crawlers that just find mp3s that aren't supposed to be public but they make them public <laughs> um enjoy them but we uh i am still intending to um release the masters of that uh having been um sitting on them for a while and just uh kind of <laughs> unable to close the book on that thing yeah. so um but it's in the works and someday we'll get some really fine examples of how that turned out. And it's a great record, you know. And um, so yeah. thanks for your patience and everybody <laughs> on uh, on yeah. that. So it'll be maybe 21 years before it's actually <laughs> released. But uh-huh. It's good to wait till your recordings are of drinking age before letting them go public. <laughs> Probably need one. So looking around your studio and the pieces of gear you have here, you definitely have some very nice, clean, modern things. And you also have a lot of weird old things with a lot of character. And I get the sense from you that a lot of your recordings, the recording process itself almost becomes a character in that recording. And it seems like you try to capture some of these weird pieces that you can't find anywhere else. Do you have any favorites or any uh Well, I, I don't know if I I don't know if I have favorites exactly. Um but um but I, I have a my favorite thing really is is more about I think the process and um and that I always want to, if possible, I want to get the nicest, cleanest, most accurate representation from the get-go. And then after that, all bets are off, you mm-hmm. know. And and I, I try to, I do try to let the song tell me what we're going to do with this song, um, even when I'm making an album or something like that. I mean, I do like to have consistency in, in records. And if that's what, you know, the person that I'm working with wants, then... I'm always going to serve what they want from the record, but I have all kinds of ideas. I'm a very collaborative person. I, I usually work better with other people than I am working on my own. I can't ever seem to say it's good enough or what else could we do with this or what's missing or I don't know, I'll make that decision later and then the thing never comes out. So um, so this, this is a problem for me that I like to have other people working with me so that... Um, so that we can move in the same direction together, however we come to the agreement on what that direction is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I just I just know that if we start clean, then we can get a great, clean, modern-sounding record, or we can, um, like uh, most re- most recently, I did um, some mixing for the group called Pets, mm-hmm. and uh, this group isn't in existence anymore. But um, but this was sort of a recording for posterity and. They took a lot of time getting some really great sounds up at Western Sound Studio, and then uh, they gave it to me and said, we want something non-traditional. And um, so I wound up um, using my, I have a Soundcraft 200B Mm -hmm. series as my mainframe. That's under the 
the skeleton cloth here uh-huh. and um, dust cover. And um, and I just used that uh, along with uh, an old Alesis. What is this? A quadriverb. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this Orban uh, 424A compressor. Um, and that, that was pretty much it. I, I have this old Biamp uh, quad limiter that was supposed to be, I think, for PA systems back in the day, but it's a really nice kind of dirty peak limiter. And, uh, you know, so I love a good peak limiter and a good reverb unit and a nice compressor, and that's the most that I ever really do on, until we start getting completely experimental and uh, mm. break out the ring modulator and, <laughs> um, you know, different sorts of carrier waves and and that sort of thing but um but i'm really happy with the results of that pets record because um it just it sounds like i i don't i don't know how it's probably gonna sound weird but i'm like it sounds more like a, a demo from the 80s or something like that mm-hmm. and uh and I, that really seemed to uh resonate with them they really liked the results and i really liked the results but what was just funny because we could have made a very um a very clean modern sounding you know indie rock type of record and and it would and everybody would have been happy with that too i think you know as a listener but um but sometimes you might be scratching your head going why did you spend all that time in the studio to get something that maybe you could have done with your four track and i'm like because you know if we wanted to do it to four track then we would have started with that but um we i didn't know what they wanted and so <laughs> we we could do whatever we wanted with it when you start with something nice, but you can't get mm-hmm. that nice thing starting with a four track. Right. Um, you're, so you're locked in to that sound. Yeah where, yeah. where what you're talking about is recording something clean so that you have a lot of options. So you can take it wherever is needed in production. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, that does tend to um, extend your timelines, but. Um, but you know, I'd rather. But it extends your options. Right, it extends yeah. your options. So as long as you're um, going to be kind of judicious about how you're going to do it, and you're um, uh, committed, you know, dedicated, disciplined about your timelines, then you can still get it done, you know, without it taking literally forever. Yeah. Um, well, see, that's that's a great thing to think about there because you know when we're working on our own material or we're working on stuff more for fun then you know there's kind of no time limit and you can just mess around forever and that sort of thing but in the real world when you're working with clients you're working with projects and you're working with budgets Mm -hmm. uh you know whether your time is limited by the budget or whether your time is limited by a release date or whatever you know how do you balance the urge that you probably get with some of your clients to experiment you know indefinitely versus the reality of okay we got to dedicate to something and move on yeah yeah well for me i just if i have the time i'm gonna do it so um Mm -hmm. you know i i i always i don't want to undercut you know my take home as far as being able to make ends meet being a sound engineer um but uh i also i know what it's like to put out something that you're not happy with and you live with that for the rest of your life and everybody else, you know, as long as it exists and people are listening to it, that's what they have as their representation. So, um, you know, I think part of my impetus in being a sound engineer in the first place is that kind of, um, permanence, the transcending of time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really love, uh, doing the media transfers that I do is that, you know, I can save people's like heirlooms and their family recordings that would be lost to, um, you know, this old tape technology that's slowly dying off in a, in a way, um, you know, that, um, 
that while right now, while I'm still here and this technology can still be saved, then uh, we're going to save those things for people. Um, so, so for me, I'm, I tend to just spend a lot of time. I'm, I'm mostly thinking about what is this going to be like in 20 years? Am I still going to be happy with it? Will I know that I did everything that I could to get the thing that I wanted? And as long as I can do that and still eat, then, you know, I'm, I'm basically going to be happy with the end product and, um, an, yeah. an extra half hour for something that is going to sit better with you, hopefully for decades, yeah, is well worth it. Absolutely, is what you're absolutely. Yep. 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 Now, now you bring up the transfers, which is really interesting for people listening that uh, may not know. We are at Brian's Studio Thirty Seven here in a converted barn at his home in Kalamazoo, and uh, uh, in this place, there's there's quite an extensive control room uh, set up here with uh, all kinds of modern and vintage gear, as well as a performance space, and uh, facilities do quite a bit of transfers and archiving of stuff. Brian does a lot of work uh, archiving tapes and vinyl and all of that, and uh, uh, is set up here for uh, all kinds of formats. That's really interesting to me, because that, you know, that serves a really important historical purpose, especially for a lot yeah. of these media that is getting harder and harder to find a way to play back. Right? Um, are are there any experiences? You, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, kind of you know the the appreciation for the permanence of of digitizing some of these old tapes. Like, what what kind of things have you stumbled across that people have brought you? Anything? Yeah. Um, no, this is, I think, probably my favorite tape uh, so far was um, of this uh, famous uh, or once famous Irish storyteller, uh, Seamus McManus. And um, I had never heard of Mr. McManus, but, um, but, you know, prior to TV and radio, you had storytellers. And, um, and so he, I can't remember when he was born, but um, he's a late 1800s. Um, and uh, he learned from all of the master storytellers in Ireland, and he was uh, one of one of the people who one of the sought after people to do uh, stories and and who had stories from a time when uh, everything was passed down, you know, orally or um, that sort of the, you know, the oral tradition uh, passing down stories and tales, and uh, and of all things, there's a fellow in Kalamazoo who contacted me about this tape that he had, and it was one of uh, McManus's last public addresses before he passed, and the tape was from 1958 um, in at a Boston college or a Boston seminary, or I can't quite remember the exact location, but, um, but uh, yeah, this was one of his last recordings, and for some reason, I don't know how this person in Kalamazoo has the tape, hmm. Um, but uh, he wanted to get it digitized locally before he mailed it to one of the Boston colleges for their long-term archives. Um, so, um, and, and of all things, that tape didn't require any special care at all. Um, you know, you, a lot of tapes, we have to bake them um, and take care of that uh, shed or otherwise um, account for uh, that uh, degradation of the tapes in a lot of cases, but um, but this tape was perfect. It sounded excellent and um, didn't have any shed at all. Hmm. Um, very strange uh, for a tape of that age, although I, I have found it interesting that um, tapes, for me, in my experience, have gotten really bad in the 80s and 90s, hmm. and that a lot of the tapes from the 70s and, and 60s were formulated in a way that still happens to hold up today, and I, I just wonder if that's a 
you know, an example of like cost savings or corner cutting right. or whatever. And uh, that didn't happen quite as much uh, the further back you go. And, you know, so some of these tapes kind of fit that, whether it's really applicable or not. Um, but it was just great hearing that and, um, and, and being having that transported kind of feeling, you know, and, um, and saving this thing. I don't know who else, if anybody else in the world has a copy of that tape. Uh, but, um, but now you can copy it yeah. <laughs> indefinitely. Yeah, you know, that, as, that, that's history right there. It's fantastic. Right. Of course, we, it's its own challenge to, you know, we're not, we're not doing it. Digital is not permanent, but it's at least a, a step in the right direction. Right. So when you digitize things, is that going to Pro Tools most yeah, of the time these yeah. days? Yeah, I, I still work in Pro Tools almost exclusively, and... Um, um, and that just it happens to be what I'm using in in my studio right now. But it's what I've always used, so mm -hmm. so I do. But um, but the transfer um itself is uh, I have a MCI JH110B, mm -hmm. um, and um, and then uh, that uh, goes out to uh, my my studio main uh stuff is uh, I have a Crane Song Spider. Um, and that, if you're not aware of that, it's a kind of the Swiss army knife for, um, uh, for ADAT inputs. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's how my studio can revolve around, uh, an old Digio 2 system mm -hmm. and still sound, you know, fantastic is that the front end is this Crane Song Spider. Yeah. Which um, is also, I should throw in also eight beautiful mic pre's and a whole bunch of other we're talking through it right now actually right we're talking to yep. it right through it to it right yeah we're talking through a couple 58s to the crane song spider as we speak and uh yeah so so that that has a variety of adat optical options yes on it as yeah well, right? it's yeah it's a really uh, a fantastic all-in-one tool and, and i highly recommend it if you can afford that kind of uh price tag it's mm -hmm. much cheaper than buying all the components separate i assure you um, but, uh, no line inputs, mic inputs, um, eight channel stereo mix bus, mm -hmm. um, with simultaneous digit, digital outputs, um, multi-track outputs and stereo outputs, yeah. analog outputs, uh, tape saturation, emulation, Jeez. peak limiters on every channel. Um, so it's my go-to thing and it just kind of stays in the studio unless I'm going on location for, um, uh, a, a date that's over 14 channels and mm -hmm. or has uh, a lot of drums in it because uh, those peak mm -hmm. limiters are just perfect. Well, um, well I just want to circle back for a second to yeah. uh, the transfer thing. Yes, I'm maybe sorry. It, no, no, it's <laughs> hard not to get excited about about that guy sitting right there. Um, uh, uh, just thinking about the process, something that might be informational, informative yeah. to people uh, that uh, you know might be interested in getting into that. So basically, you, you dump from a variety of formats into Pro Tools, and then once you're in Pro Tools, do you go ahead and, and uh, split up the file into track markers? Like, how do you deliver these digitizations that you're doing these right. days? Yeah, so that it's just a, it's dependent on the client. Mm -hmm. and pretty much everything I do is based on the client needs. So um, I've had clients who want me to uh, make a CD with individual track increments and and a liner card, and um, and I can do that, or I can just run the whole track and give you a file. Um, I, I'm doing um, a, a collection of uh, techno tapes from the early 90s with a fellow who knows how to do the rest of the processing, and all he wants is for me to run the tape and send him the whole unedited tape. Um, very simple, just top to bottom, and then... Um, and then I, the transfer project that I'm doing for uh, WMU Waldo Libraries, um, I do an, an 
in-depth Excel spreadsheet with every track and what's happening on the track and the composer and some of the content and the time code and and all of that sort of thing. So, um, so it, whatever you need, yeah, um, I'm happy to help. So sweet. So, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of the possible impermanence of digital recording, and yeah. you know, the truth is, is like, yes, a wave file. Anybody in our business can play a wave file right now, but what about in 50 years or whatever? You know, and kind of trying to think ahead to, you know, how are we going to be able to archive <laughs> these digital recordings we're making now. Right. Do you have any thought? Is there anything you're doing on your end to kind of think about that longevity when you're archiving things? Or are you just capturing it as Pro Tools sessions and WAV files for now and figure you'll cross that bridge when things change down the road? Yeah. Well, so with especially with the Waldo tape collection and a lot of these uh, tape collections or individuals that I'm doing, um, there's really uh, none of the main pitfalls that you might get in a big multi-track session with different plugins and reverbs and that sort of thing that are right. the truly short-term um, in terms of um, um, you know uh, longevity of the programs and having access to what you had when you did the mix. Um, so what I try to do with uh, the transfers is to not have any of that. Um, and there's really no special treatments that wouldn't be uh, beneficial to having in the final product anyway. So um, I don't really have to do reverbs or that sort of thing. Mostly all I'm doing is um, I'm still, uh, I use RX, the mm -hmm. RX uh, suite for... Isotope RX. Isotope. Yeah, 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 for um, uh, for uh, taking out clicks and noises and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so I try not to be too heavy-handed with those things so that I can make those decisions permanent. Um, and the, and so I just have the one stereo file and no, nothing to worry about in the future except, you know, I, I do my backups in triplicate. Um, mm -hmm. So that's 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 what I'm doing for, um, for those things is just trying to commit all my decisions because there are so few to make. Um, and right. the, in a worst-case scenario, I have a pre-noise reduction version and post-noise reduction version. Mm-hmm. And then we can make up our minds in 20 years if, you know, when RX 40 comes out, right? <laughs> um, you know, we can uh, we can make it perfect if if it wasn't in the first place. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's a different thing, you know, doing the archive style of recording, whether it's stereo transfers or just having that archival approach that you tend to have with some styles of music when yeah. you record them. You know, uh, especially you know your, your work up at Western with a lot of classical groups and jazz groups and that sort of thing. You know, I've always looked at that approach as being a lot more archival too, although of course you're usually multi-tracking or whatever, you know, but, but it, it's a very different thing than the studio as instrument mm -hmm. style and that sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, which, which lends its own uh, world of challenges when you're just trying to go the natural archival route. I know you you did a, a lot of on location recording for Gilmore mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, and that would move around from location to location too, right? Yeah, I would work in a I, I work in a few different rooms for mm -hmm. for Gilmore projects. Yeah. yeah, I mean you do that all over the place, you know, with your sure. Your yeah, I've been setup. all over. Yeah, I've been all yeah. over West Michigan, especially yeah. in um, for on location work. Yeah, yeah. How, how does how does constantly changing the venue or the space you're recording in kind of influence your approach? To different projects. Oh yeah, well the the approach to the project is really um, well for me. You know, you we haven't really touched on uh, my my work in the communication field, mm -hmm. and uh, that's fine, um, of course. But uh, but the the really big thing to me is that um, 
all of the pro all of my projects no matter what they are that always start with an in-depth conversation with the client about what it is that they want to get and what they have to work with um and so that everybody's everybody sees these things differently the client is always um their needs are always changing and their budgets are are always very different um and they've had certain experiences a lot of the times that informs um the 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 way that they want to approach this thing or whatever it is when we go to do a new project so um so really um i have some of my you know standard operating procedures but but at the at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day I want to know what my client wants to get out of it and how I can make it work for them uh, within their resources. So um, if I go on location and we have, you know, a very small budget, then we can only do so much. And that's going to limit the range of options that we have to work with at the beginning of the thing, what we can set out to do within that budget. And so that uh, to me is how we need to view the thing because I, I can't bring... <clears throat> Yeah, you know, I can't bring up a hundred when you've got ten, right? And I shouldn't bring ten if you've got a hundred. So um, it's just like um, I'm not too sure if this is really answering the question for you, but I just uh, every one of these uh, projects is uh, unique. So yeah. um, when I have the the means to do, I I don't know. I mean, I can do a um, uh, twenty four twenty eight tracks on location if I need to. And if the budget is there, I'm usually going to use all of those tracks because for one reason or another, I want to have different uh, options or I want to um, fine tune one thing or another more specifically or something along those lines. Um, but um, do, do you use a lot of like room mics, for instance, when you're recording in a large reverberant space or, you know, it, it, like what, what kind of typical thing do you do, you know, say for a Gilmore piano recording, what's your setup look like for that sort of thing? Okay, yeah. For a solo piano recording um, with the Gilmore, what they're looking for is uh, we want to have a great sounding recording at the end of the day, even if my multi-track dies. Mm. So I'm making uh, my decisions all during setup. Uh, we're using four microphones, um, and what it would be is uh, we'll have a room pair, and that's going to be our, our number one thing because that that's just the style and the way that these types of recordings get done, uh, for the most part, um, especially live, we're looking for that live vibe. We want to know that it's it's a live performance. So um, so we wouldn't do a whole lot of studio trickery with a whole lot of close mics. Um, but um, and so I'm relying on that room pair, uh, and I usually just use either a space pair of Omnis or an ORTF. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and that's the number one thing that, that should sound good all on its own. Mm. And then, um, then you really don't have much to worry about in terms of the archive. You've got your stereo track right there. What, um, what, what kind of mics are you usually using for that? Are there specific ones you're drawn to? Well, I've had different access. Um, I've had access to different mics throughout, um, those, uh, Gilmore happens on a two year cycle. Mm-hmm. And every two years, I've had a little bit ac different access to different gear. So in the past, um, I rented microphones from Western Sound Studios, and I used uh, the DPA 4006s. Mm. And so uh, those would tend to be uh, my distant pair in a spaced Omni set. And then um, the producers, though, have always wanted to be able to bring things a little bit closer to the studio world. And so we do have closer mics. Um 
and so I'll just tend to uh, I refer to this as a Baldwin pair, and um, I, I I haven't really met too many other people who know what I'm talking about, so I might be referring to it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, a, a pair of small diaphragm condensers that are roughly five feet apart from one another, five feet out from the piano, and five feet up in uh, elevation. Um, and so something in that ballpark is where I will hear, um, I like the low end on its own mic towards the toe, and I like the high end from the keys um, and the hammers up on the other mic uh, on the left. So it's kind of just how you're seeing it, but uh, it's as if your ears are very wide and standing much closer to the piano than you are in the house. But, um, but I've gotten so many good results with that um, in the studio. That's one of my main studio approaches if I am just doing solo piano. Um, it's too far for a lot of bleed, uh, if you, if you have other instruments in there. Right. But, uh, for soloists, um, I just really like that perspective and it, and it tends to get a good sound. Um, that isn't too roomy. So then we can choose a little bit more about how we treat it. Um, and so that gives, uh, for the Gilmore, that gives them the, a little bit of close mic and not so much ambience, but then blended with that room mic. And, um, and so I just, I have a, I always have the luxury of an assistant engineer with me on those dates, and um, we set up where um, I can speak to them through um, uh, a walkie-talkie in their headphones, and I'm just listening up in the control room to ask them to make minor adjustments as to where those closer mics totally, you know, where they actually reside, and uh, so that I can bring that picture into focus. Um, And then we print a two-mix of that, but uh, I'm also running a multi-track of all of those channels. So I can, I have my thing if the multi-track dies, and I also have my uh, artist reference copy immediately after the show. Nice. So you're recording in a way that you've got a quick stereo artist reference copy. You can get them right after the show, but also doing some more tracks in the multi-track so that you've got more options for mixing or delving deeper into later. Yeah. If that's nice. what they want to do. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're, we have enough time. Um, there's a very luxurious gig, uh, in terms of setup time and, um, and the amount of rehearsal time that we'll usually get with the pianist. Um, and so I, I'm so thankful for that type of, uh, timeline on that gig because we can make all of our decisions during the rehearsal and uh and get something that is really very close to the final product if not the final product that i'm handing the artist after after the gig wow so That's slick. it's really great um yeah. and uh and it limits your all you have to do is go home and archive it you know after the show so um so that that's that's a pretty simple, you know, straightforward sort of thing, and that is not unlike what I would expect to do for other uh, soloist recitals, mm-hmm. um, that would you know be suited by a spaced pair of omnis in the house and, you know, very little if any close miking. So um, a lot of jazz and and um, and maybe soprano singers and other or or uh, operatic type singers, um, mm-hmm. classically trained singers, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, you get a lot out of that, and um, and so now you did ask me about the signal chain that I was using for that, and mm-hmm. uh, this year um, I've I've finally stepped up to my own full set of um, I use a Sennheiser 8000 series. Um, I have a set of 8040 uh, cardioids and uh, 8020 omnis, um, and those uh, um, and at this point I also picked up. Um, uh, John Hardy um, M1 mm-hmm. and uh, a Millennia HV3D, 
and um, so it's a, a little a bit of overlap, but um, but uh, yeah, it's a very tall rack of gear to get four channels, but <laughs> um, but the end result is just wonderful and uh, poses a lot of flexibility in terms of how it gets to uh, however many tape machines we need to run, and I just use tape machines uh, as a as a phenomenal recorders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, any sure. recorders the tape machine. For more on Brian, check out 37ENT.com and stay tuned for part two of our conversation in a future episode. You've been listening to Electricians and Mad Men. Today's interview was recorded at Studio 37 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnecht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.